Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Rejoice! The Believer, the esteemed literary magazine, is back in San Francisco. In 2003, when we first met our hero, the magazine was a brilliant publication with all the beauty of youth. And what a run it had, publishing a fantastic array of writers, spawning imitators, making careers. But a few years back, it fell on hard times, as many of us do in middle age. And it moved out to Nevada, got bought and sold, had an embarrassing Zoom nudity incident, and seemed to die and not with dignity. But then, a great outpouring of love and also American currency arrived. The magazine experienced a great resurrection, launching its first new issue yesterday. We'll talk with the founders and current editor of The Believer. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. To the writers I came up with in the late aughts, The Believer was already a towering publication that we revered. They actually published the kind of nonfiction you wanted to write, but no one would pay you for. It never put on the airs of your whatever review kind of literary magazine, but that was part of what made it cool. It had retained the fun irony of kind of Gen X zine making during the dead-eyed Facebook years while also becoming a part of the publishing establishment. It also felt distinctly San Francisco to me, some kind of end of the continent slash end of the world reckless optimism. You couldn't make this thing in New York, but could you make it in Las Vegas? That was a big question in 2017 when the Black Mountain Institute at UNLV acquired the Believer. And then it went through a series of unfortunate events before its triumphant return here to the city. So we're going to talk about the path the magazine has taken and what we can expect from the Believer now. We have its three founding editors in the house as well as its current editor. Ben DeLavita, one of the co-founders, is the author of six books, including most recently, We Run the Tide. She's also a founding board member of 826 Valencia. Welcome. Thank you. Heidi Julevitz, another co-founder, is the author of The Folded Clock, a diary, as well as four critically acclaimed novels, co-editor of the New York Times bestseller, Women in Clothes, great book, and her memoir, Directions to Myself, is forthcoming in 2023. Welcome, Heidi. Thank you so much. Ed Park. The third co-founder is the author of the novel Personal Days and the forthcoming Same Bed, Different Dreams. Welcome, Ed. Thank you. And we have Daniel Gumbiner, who is the current editor. Uh, His first book, The Boat Builder, was nominated for the National Book Award and was a finalist for the California Book Awards. Welcome, Daniel. Glad to be here. So I need one of you to walk us through kind of what happened to the magazine after 2017. Um, Vendela, why don't we, before we get into our joyous celebration, why don't you start walking us through uh, sort of what the magazine's been through? Well, Heidi, Ed, and I started the magazine in 2003, and we we edited it until 2017 when we sold it for financial reasons to uh, the Black Mountain Institute in Las Vegas. And I felt like it was extending 
your kid off to college. You know, it's been a couple <laughs> good years, been four years there. And then it came, it's now it's come back home and it's sleeping on our couch and requiring lots of milk and lots of loads of laundry. Um, but it's, you know, much more better for its journey. It's much more educated world. You know, it's seen the world a little bit more. It's gone through some hard <laughs> times, but um, it's, you know, humbled and, and, and smarter and better off for the experience. But yes, it went through, it was at UNLV, University of Nevada, Las Vegas at, um, with the Black Mountain Institute for a number of years. And then it was sold to a um, to a company very briefly it was owned by a company there's no other way to say it that sold sex toys um, which is a very interesting path for a for a literary magazine, literary magazine. yes yeah. but you know it's like a college student who you know graduates and takes a, takes a job that you know isn't everything they thought it was going to be and then um, after, quit very shortly after and came back to San Francisco to um, to live on our couch you know Daniel Gumbiner you went through uh, the Nevada years you were there at least for for some of it um, Talk to me about, you know, what it was like. Was Las Vegas the right place for this kind of magazine? Did it find receptive audience there? Yeah, I mean, I think it did. It did grow a lot in that time. And I think it it had a great impact on the community and and still does. Actually, there were some folks who came up for we've been doing a couple events here in the Bay Area for the release of the new issue. And there were some. Uh, Las Vegas folks there who who came to celebrate the release. So I think, you know, it, it made a great impact down there. And I think the magazine changed in interesting ways and evolved. And now it's entering its its third phase. And yeah, yeah like Mandela said, graduated from college and uh, starting its new life in the city. Yeah. Heidi Julevitz, maybe you could talk a little bit about the actual support that the Believer received from the community, kind of to, to get this, get things restarted, to get the resurrection uh, begun. There was a big, big Kickstarter, yeah. Um, yeah, so um, I think you probably know, um, I actually was sort of surprised to learn this recently, that um, our Kickstarter was um, the most successful Kickstarter ever in the history of Kickstarter for literary magazines. Mm. Um, And, uh, yeah, I think it was a little bit overwhelming to us, actually, to see how many people um, cared so much about this magazine that they would step up. And when we saw the list of people who had contributed, it was was really... um, like I cried. I think a lot of people yeah. actually cried. Yeah. <laughs> In fact, the last four pages of the issue, this is Vandala, um, are, are dedicated. They list the names of everyone who contributed, and it's so fun too to see so many familiar names here and people we've published in the magazine. Everything from everyone from Jonathan Lethem to Zadie Smith to Colin Malloy, people who came up came out and supported us. And um, and so we have the last four pages. It just makes me want to cry looking at all the mm. names here, the beautiful names and familiar names and also names that are new to us and writers who I've admired from afar who actually haven't been involved with the magazine but who just came out. And I'm just really impressed by everyone in San Francisco, too, who supported the magazine and McSweeney's board and our publisher, Amanda Yuli and Brian Dice, Dave Freeman, Dave Eggers, Hillary Kivitz, everyone who's just rallied around the magazine to bring it back home. Yeah. You know, Ed Park, I wanted to ask you, I mean, you left the magazine, I think, earlier, um, I think it was in 2011. So yes. what was it like for you kind of watching from afar as the magazine kind of was going through, you know, the twists and turns of a small magazine life in the 21st century? Well, I would always look forward to getting, you know, my, my subscription in the mail and, and rooting rooting the magazine on uh, from afar, as it were. Yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't really involved. I got into book publishing uh, for a while. And, but it was still sort of um, a, great, uh, a great source and a great touchstone for me, just like in terms of when I was a, when I was a book editor, um, 
you know, you could you can kind of uh, have a connection with with a writer. Uh, for example, there's a writer named Ryan Walsh who's in the current issue, who is also he happened to be a longtime Believer fan, and he he had I guess written a letter to the Believer that we published you know years back, and so that was something that you know I I could immediately sort of. Um, form a connection. Like I kind of knew a little bit about his interests and how his mind works. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I did a book with him and he is actually now in this in this uh, new issue with a really fun uh, kind of secret history piece about those strange paintings that you see in diners that have to, that put Elvis, uh, James oh, Dean. Into, like the Edward <laughs> Hopper painting. Exactly. Right? Yeah. yeah. And uh, it's, it's really a lot of fun. So um, yeah, it, it it remained sort of very important uh, in my in my life. Yeah, and we're going to talk a lot more about this uh, issue in a, in a few minutes. But I I want to I want to stay in the history for for one few more minutes here, um, Vendela, and I'm going to ask each of the founders this one: What is a piece or an issue or you know one of the writers from the Believers catalog? Where you feel like, yes, we were the only ones who would or could have done that, and we did it, and it was awesome. Well, I from the start, from nearly the start, Nick Hornby, um, author of High Fidelity and many, many other books. Most recently, a book about Prince and Dickens, which is really exceptional, and I encourage everyone to get for um, their loved ones for Christmas and the holiday season. Um, it is. Um, he started writing for us um, very near the inception of the magazine, and he wanted to write a column about. It's called Stuff I've Been Reading. And his whole philosophy, and when he pitched it to me, he said, you know, I feel like book reviewers are paid to write about a specific book, and they're paid to review it, and they're paid to read the whole book and have an opinion. And he said, that's not really what a reader's experience is. A reader's experience is they go to the bookstore, they buy a couple books, they have every intention of reading those books, they get home, for some reason the books sit on their shelves for months, or they open one of the books and read three pages and put it down. And he wanted to write about that you know, really genuine experience of what it's like to be a reader. And we thought that gelled very well with the with the philosophy of the magazine, um, one of the philosophies of the magazine is that we don't have to be timely. We're not wed to a uh, you know, New York publishing schedule and the PR schedule for a book being released, and we have to review it that specific day. In fact, we often review books that have been out for 90 years. <laughs> so we definitely... If I mean, that's the glory of the book. They're still, you know... Yeah, they're still there. I don't think there are very few of us who run out and read a book the day it comes out. And so I've been really, um, really honored and proud to publish stuff I've been reading um, by Nick Hornby throughout the years. And he's been with the magazine even through its... You know, Las Vegas years, and he's still with us. He has a great new column, and he, and during the music issue, um, he always writes a, a column called "What He's Been Listening To," and of course, that's a total pleasure as well. Yeah. Um, Heidi Julevitz, how about you? What's a distinctly believery piece or, or thing? Well, I'm actually thinking back to a piece. I believe it was Leslie Jameson's first piece that mm-hmm. she'd ever published. It was called. Um, it was it was about a marathon called uh, the Barkley Marathon. It takes place in Tennessee, and people essentially just. Uh, run through the woods um, and up and over mountains, and it's incredibly grueling. And um, and I I am proud of that piece for a couple of reasons. Obviously, um, Leslie, yeah, Leslie, <laughs> just say that. But um, but you know, Leslie was not able to find a place to publish that, and mm-hmm. we were the kind of magazine that would take a piece by a writer who was obviously so talented, um, yeah, about a bunch of people running through the mud and up and over mountains for 100 miles in Tennessee. That wasn't the kind of piece that um, has an easy home, but with us it really, um, it, it, that's exactly the kind of piece that we would publish. And so I feel um, I feel incredibly proud that we were a part of her uh 
journey as a writer and mm-hmm. so many other people who we feel really um, lucky to have interacted with at the very earliest stages of their career. Yeah. We were baby writers together, so I remember that piece. <laughs> I remember being very happy for her. So uh, that's awesome. Um, Ed, how about, how about you? Yeah, I keep thinking about a piece that we did, that we ran in our games issue. This was during the Believer's uh, first incarnation. Uh, the games issue was full of amazing pieces, and one was by a writer named Paul Lafarge, who had written uh, several novels already at that point, um, but I knew he was a Dungeons and Dragons, uh, to say fan is, is nerd. I mean, yeah, I mean, nerd, I mean, with love. I, yeah. I, you know, getting, having gotten to know him, I knew he had, you know, a lot, he would be an interesting person to write about Dungeons and Dragons. And I still maintain this, the piece that he wrote is, is the single best thing, uh, ever written about the game, which is, which is saying a lot. Cause it's, uh, you know, as the years go on, it, D and D sort of has come back into the culture, but, mm-hmm. uh, back then it was maybe in a bit of a lull. And Paul, uh, two things about that piece. One was he structured it around kind of a quest to play a game of D&D with Gary Gygax, who invented Mm -hmm. the game in the 70s. And he was successful and he had a great time. The other thing, and what I, what I, the reason why I, I think of this piece in terms of what could the can the believer do that a lot of other magazines can't is that the way it was structured was such that if you were sort of already in the D and D know, you could read it. Um, you you could take one path in your reading of the article. If you didn't know anything at all about it, he provided like this very um, winning and accessible introduction. So he compares it to like being outside the cave or already being inside the cave and it's just it's one of my you know my favorite believer pieces and i think one one of the the best things that that paul has written we're talking about the resurrection of the believer magazine with its three founding editors van delavita heidi julevitz and ed park as well as its current editor daniel gumbiner i'm alexis madrigal stay tuned for more right after the break This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We are talking about the resurrection of the Believer magazine with its three founding editors, Vanda Levita, Heidi Julevitz, and Ed Park, as well as its current editor, Daniel Gumbiner. We're going to have a little uh, music for you of people who are in the current resurrection issue. This is the uh, New Love Cassette remix uh, by Angel Olsen. There's a big 
big wonderful interview with her in new uh, issue. We'd love to hear from you. What stories and poetry and art would you like to see The Believer publish? Or maybe you were a Believer reader all through. Maybe you contributed to the Kickstarter. What are you excited to see in this new resurrected format? Give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or KQED Forum. And the email is forum at kqed.org. You know, one listener uh, writes in to say, I was a Believer subscriber, and what attracted me to the magazine was its writing, but also its graphics and unusual layouts. It was full color. The graphic artistry was so distinctive. And I think we don't really give that credit now, but it has some sort of seeped into how magazines and books today are with strong graphic novel imagery and presence. It was innovative then, and I'm so happy it will be back. And that's true. Uh, Daniel Gumbiner, current editor of the uh, of the magazine, want to talk about just tell us what the cover looks like uh, of this particular issue. And then we're going to talk about a few stories. Yeah, well, the cover um, has a bunch of faces on it, uh, folks who are in the magazine. And that is sort of like the classic Believer Grid look, uh, which the magazine was initially designed with. Um, for years, Charles Burns was doing the covers, and these portraits are by Christian Hammerstad. Um, but the yeah, the, the magazine had a slightly different style when it was in Las Vegas. It was more uh, a single piece of art on the cover, but in this relaunch back in San Francisco, we decided to go back to a sort of reimagined version uh, 2.0 of the grid. I love it. And I have to say um, the art director is Senra Thompson. He just did a beautiful job. You have to look at the cover. I encourage everyone to look at it online. The pinks and yellows and blues are very they're very San Francisco, very esprit colors. Um <laughs> fact esprit being found in San Francisco. It looks like a very I looked at esprit also. I, right. Yeah. Oh, did you really? Esprit I did. plays a big part in this magazine. It sure does. <laughs> um I want to talk about one of the the big pieces in here, which I thought was just very beautiful by Rafia uh, Zakaria. It's about a teenage girl in 1990s Karachi, Rafia herself, of course, nonfiction, um, and about this sort of telephonic love affair that she has. Um, can someone tell me tell me a little bit more about this particular story? Yeah, well, this this was a piece that um, we were we were super honored to receive from Rafia, and it came in like an almost perfectly completed form, um, and we all just fell in love with it right away. Um, I think it, you know, it really captures um, a very familiar experience of youth, first love, but, uh, you know, also that experience in 1990s uh, Karachi, which was very different in many ways. And um, it's full of twists and turns. And Rafi is just such an emotionally attuned writer, I think. And she really captures that uh, feel of going through your first love in a, in a very tender way. And so we were all just really moved by the piece and uh, we're, we're ex- very excited to feature it. One, well, it also, I mean, to your theme of resurrection, it's also really about resurrecting. Is it possible? It opens with, is it possible to resurrect a first love? And exactly, it, yeah. I, I don't want to give away the ending, <laughs> but I will just say. Yeah, there are some twists it's and an turns. Adult, uh, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. Um, 
what's um uh Vandela, what's maybe your favorite piece? Maybe you can't choose your among your children like this, but what's a piece you'd like to talk about or, or make sure uh, well, people knows in it? You 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 stole it, Alexis. It's Rafia's <laughs> piece. It really <laughs> was so incredible to me. Um I just loved her feminist perspective on arranged marriage. I thought it was really I loved her details about what it was like to see a boy when she was a teenager and how mm. it really made me realize how little contact she had with boys um, and would have to see them across the aisle in a supermarket. Another interview that I really love is the Miguel, Miguel Arteta is interviewed by Aubrey Plaza, and it is one of my favorite interviews we published. It's in the it's in the new issue, and of course Miguel Arteta, you know, is the is the director of many beloved films, and Aubrey Plaza is an amazing actress and most recently and director and most recently known for um, her work on White Lotus, playing Harper, and she is um, she's a great interviewer. And the interview, I won't say what happens in it, but I cried at the end of the interview. I just was bawling on my couch just reading it, and I, I mm. am very proud to be publishing it at length, and it's really an honest conversation between two artists about life and art and what it means to leave a legacy. You know, in reading back on some of the things that you all have said about The Believer over the years, one of the things that you emphasize in a hilarious way is the long interview, <laughs> that what we do is we publish long interviews. Mm-hmm. Um, what is it about a long interview that like, what do you get from that form that you wouldn't get from some other form of nonfiction? I think you and you get a deeper sense of who someone is. It's like having a long dinner conversation with someone. If you're going to have like a speed date with someone, then you might just get some sound bites. But I feel like the the purpose of publishing long interviews was really to allow the reader to settle into a conversation with someone. And it could be a philosopher, an artist, a writer, and to really feel like they were in the room with that person and got to know them in a, in a deeper a deeper way. Um, one of our listeners wrote in to say, I got a copy of The New Believer. There is a love <laughs> a love story to the McDonald's on 24th and Mission that feels so San Francisco to me. Where else would you read something like that? Mm-hmm. Not The Chronicle. Um, That's by Oscar Biel. And I mean, it's by Oscar. Oscar, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oscar, who's the, the yeah. great editor of Ziziva, another uh, local journal. Yeah. You know, that's a good that's a good uh, transition to something that I, I wanted to ask uh, Ed you about. One it, the believer when it launched and as it evolved, like how do you see it fitting into the kind of constellation or the ecosystem of literary magazines, both in San Francisco and you live in New York now, you know, across the country? That's a good question. I think, you, you know, we've been around now for so long that it's funny to just being being. Uh, involved in, in in all these events here this uh, these past couple of days uh, just reminds me how long uh, Heidi Vendel and I have known each other and mm-hmm. how long it's been since we started the magazine and um, you know in my mind it's still like the new you know the new kid on the block but mm-hmm. <laughs> but actually it's not and so so it's it's interesting coming back to it and and you know we're all we're all older and um, I'm still, you know, a big fan of, you know, anything new that's uh, people people trying trying new things, new publications. Um, there's there's, for example, a, a magazine called The Drift mm-hmm. that I think is is pretty electric, um, and you know, I think that's that's sort of what we have in common with it. You know, when we started the Believer, and but kind of if if I can talk about this new issue. Uh, there's a bit of like, oh wow, we can we can still do this. We we can still make this um, this amazing publication, and uh, you know, so I think we're both 
you know, kind of an elder states person and, uh, you know. Uh, no, but you're also still 27. The, I yes, understand. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> trying to stay I should, I should, uh, to stay I should have mentioned that. Um, yeah, but, but yeah. still very much um, uh, in the mix, I think. Yeah. yeah. You know, Heidi, I wanted to ask you this. You know, um, in 2003, you're founding this thing. And part of the magazine's mission at that point is to consider the concept of the inherent good. Um, maybe that's a little easier to do in 2003 than 2022. But how do you see that? Is that still part of the Believer's mission? You know, I think that um, what I was speaking about in that particular case uh, was the attitude that you would have when you're approaching a book and you're going to write about it as a critic. And mm. I think that um, at the time, I and all of us were really responding to this very um, snarky, is the word mm -hmm. that I ended up mm -hmm. using, tone um, that people were using when they were talking about books of fiction that, you know, by debut authors, they were not going to have any readers anyways. They're going to sell, you know, five copies anyways. And so there's so very little space available in any of these venues, um, in newspapers at that time. Remember those, that's where we would read things like this. Um, <laughs> that it seemed like such a strange use of that space that was already hmm. in a state of decline. Yeah, why not talk about things you love? Exactly. So that was just sort of the that was quite honestly, it was as simple as that. Right. Um, we wanted to talk about things we liked. Um, and so it was less about I mean, it was obviously in the end we were trying to uh, um, stay on the positive side of things. Um, but it was less maybe ideological than it was just sort of um, why would you spend this very um this diminishing resource, this failing cultural attention, why would you essentially just um, uh, use your energy to put more nails in that coffin? Right. Use it to remind everybody why literary fiction sucks. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's a bumper sticker everyone has on their car already. <laughs> and I think it's much, it's much harder to write a piece, too, that is about why a book is great and, and to really explain that in an interesting way. So I think that also makes for some of the best writing, too. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I love that. I mean, I, I will say I think that is one of the things that drew me to the magazine as well, just having, I mean, th that's kind of what this show gets to do, too, a lot of the time, is to celebrate things that we love and, and talk about why they're great. Uh, and that's a, that is a form of loving criticism, you know, uh, sometimes. Um, let's, uh, let's take a practical call here. Uh, Leslie in San Francisco, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks. I would love to know um, where I can find a print copy of the latest issue um, in San Francisco. I saw how to subscribe online, but I want to get a copy today. <laughs> <laughs> the, the print copies won't be available in stores for a little bit. So the, the best way to get it uh, quickest would be to subscribe or to order the single issue online right now, but it, they will be out in stores pretty soon. That's Daniel, by the way, the current editor, who of course is up on when you'll be able to buy it. Um, I'm sorry, Leslie. Were you um, were you a longtime believer reader, or are you like coming to it fresh and are like, "Ooh, this sounds like something I want"? This is brand new information to me, and I've heard you talk about other, you know, publications and zines, you know, on the mm -hmm. program before, but. I'm excited to hear about this, and I'm going on a long flight this weekend, and so I was hoping to have some interesting reading to take with me. But I'll check you guys out online. Yeah. Thank hey, you. Hey, um, thank you. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Leslie. That's funny. Um, let's talk a little bit about the viability 
of liter- literary magazines in this media landscape. You know, there was another magazine called Astra, which recently um, lost its uh, philanthropic funding, or I guess it wasn't philanthropic, it was a Chinese publishing house. But, you know, it was basically philanthropic in a sense. Um, how do you see that? I mean, Vendela, you're close to this. Um, what, do you, what do you think? Like, how do you make something like this work? Um, you pay you pay its editors extravagantly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You're like big parties, expense accounts, private Cruises, jets. Yeah, um, yeah. no, uh, you really, uh, um, you. it's a labor of love for many of us. Um, for the writer, we're very pleased to pay our writers. We love to pay, pay them more. We really, um, you know, it's, Believer is published by McSweeney's, which is a five, which is a nonprofit, and McSweeney's um, makes eighty percent of its funding gets eighty percent of its funding from the books and magazines, but twenty percent of it is from contributions and from mm-hmm. grants and all the generous donors. And so that's, we're really just hoping the readers respond well, and um, and we really were inspired by the Kickstarter campaign, and like we said, really overwhelmed. And so we're we're hoping that people continue to support literature and support the magazine, and and we also just want people to read it. We're really proud of this magazine, and we want people to experience and hold it. It's Smells really good. Something that I kind of wait. Hold on, let me see. You're gonna smell it. <laughs> oh yeah, that's nice. Isn't it good? Yeah. yeah, I know. That's something I've always loved about the Believer. Um, when we started it, we wanted to make it. My one of my goals was to make it a magazine that you did not want to recycle, but a magazine you wanted to keep on your shelf. And I've always just loved mm. the, the smell of it. And it's gone through different printers, but it still smells really good. I've have also you... I have walked into <laughs> literary homes in the Bay Area and seen like a, a shelf of them like lined up, mm. but it made you very happy. Yeah, I feel like that's I love I love that when you see that in San Francisco homes it makes me feel really at home in San Francisco and I just feel like this oh, this is someone who's really has lived in the city for a yeah. while. We're talking about the resurrection of the Believer magazine with its three founding editors, Vendelavita, Heidi Julevitz, and Ed Park, and its current editor, Daniel Gumbiner. Uh, we want to hear from you. I mean, how do you see the Bay Area literary scene now? We've talked so much on this show about creative types getting displaced out of the Bay Area, out of San Francisco. So what's left? And is it still as strong uh, as it has traditionally been since, you know, the 1850s? Uh, You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, we're KQED Forum. And the email is forum at kqed.org. Um, One listener writes in, and Daniel, I think this one is going to you, to ask about an even more imperiled art form than um, long uh, literary nonfiction. Uh, The listener asks, will the Believer be taking poetry submissions from Bay Area locals anytime soon? We will be taking poetry submissions. Yeah, we actually have a great poetry editor, Sally Wen Mao, um, who put together um, an incredible lineup for this this first issue. You know, uh, Terrence Hayes, uh, Denez Smith... Um, so, uh, you know, that that is definitely something we will have in future issues. Jane, Jane Wong is also another poet in this issue. Um, so, uh, yes, we will. They're, they're not open at the moment, but they will open at a certain point. And um, the best place to look for that is our website where where we post that kind of thing under our submissions tab. Yeah. You know, Daniel, the obviously this magazine was founded at a time when the internet was sort of taking off it was a it was ascendant but there were many print publications that, you know many cities still had newspapers um now many more things have shifted uh digitally and in fact there seemed like there was maybe the believer was going to push in this direction in in some ways um what is the role for you of the internet in this publication at this point yeah, I mean, I think that's something that we ask ourselves a lot. What can a 
print magazine do in in this time when there's so much information coming at us? You know, it's just this fire hose of information all day. All of us experience that. Um, and so, what's the what's the purpose of a print magazine and a nonfiction magazine uh, in that context? And I think you know, it's it's different things for different people. And but I think one thing that's really nice about the Believer is you can sit down with it and you can really immerse in a uh, subject that you didn't know about maybe. Um, you can learn about new writers. The magazine is always a mixture of emerging writers and more established folks. Um, so you know you can sort of really settle in and uh, come away with something, uh, uh, settle into a, a story more deeply in a way that um, you might not be able to do um, on the internet as easily. So I think that's something that is really refreshing and and nice about having a copy of the print magazine with you. Yeah. Also, there's a lot of candy in it too. We've been talking a lot about the long pieces, but there are a lot of fun fun shorter pieces in this issue as well. There's um there's a game section, and this is a total nerdy thing that I'm really obsessed with. There's a copy editing the classic section where um there's a, a page of Wind in the Willows. And um, 10 errors have been inserted into the passage, and the reader is challenged to find them. And so our copy editor, Caitlin Van Dusen, put it together, and every with every issue, the challenge will get harder to find the mistakes in classic pieces of literature. <laughs> so that's something I personally love as someone whose first job out of um, – Columbia, um, I should say that Ed, Heidi and I all met when we were 29 years ago. Oh my gosh, at, um, on the steps of Columbia, and um, and so it's it, and then I had my first job was copying a really terrible magazine. So um, I, per, I personally really love that feature. I um I have to say I loved the <laughs> I'm gonna have a hard time not cracking up about it on the on the air. But the um in the classifieds there's sort of a gag about lotioning your ankles. Listeners <laughs> 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 are all out there going. What is he talking about? Um, but I promise you, it's so funny. I can't explain it because it's so funny. I love um, that you read the classified. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I, oh man, I turned right right to them, and I was sort of like, oh look, they're real classifieds. But also, there's a hilarious like uh, gag running through it. Um, yeah, we should say we're also accepting classifieds. If anyone oh, right. wants to yeah. post a classified, classifieds at thebeliever.net. Send us a note. A um, <laughs> it'll be in the print magazine for all of time. We're talking about the resurrection of the Believer magazine with its current editor, Daniel Gumbiner, and its three founding editors, Vanda Levita, Heidi Julevitz, and Ed Park. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more right after the break. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the resurrection of the Believer magazine with its three founding editors, Vanda Levita, Heidi Julevitz, and Ed Park, as well as its current editor, Daniel Gumbiner. We also have a little music on the show this morning from people who are in this uh, magazine. This is Ricky Lee Jones uh, with her hit Chuck E's In Love. I have to say, y'all, I... The, the interview with Ricky Lee Jones is pretty amazing in this. Um, and I am ashamed to admit I did not know Ricky Lee Jones before. And it was a it was a, one of those moments that I actually love about mm. The Believer because I was like, oh, this is this legendary person who I should have known but did not. And here they are presented in this, like, frank and, and wonderful format. So I want to know, who was the Ricky Lee Jones fan who was like, for our resurrection, resurrection issue, we've got to have an interview with her. I think we were all fans. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you're like uh, he's a dork. He's uh, this guy. <laughs> this guy. <laughs> no, but it was actually Jessica Hopper. Jess Hopper came to us with that idea, and Jess had actually interviewed uh, Ricky Lee for a film that uh, she was doing. Jess, obviously, a great um, music critic herself, um, and so she, yeah, she brought that idea to us, and we said, absolutely, Ricky Lee Jones, yes, please. It's so, so good. Um, we uh, would love to hear from you, of course, uh, all of you out there listening. Uh, if you're a Believer reader, what are you excited to see this new resurrected format do? And what voices do you think are missing from the Bay Area writing scene? The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or KQED Forum. And the email is forum at kqed.org. Um, we have an interesting um, comment coming in. Listener writes in to say, I'm curious if the editors think of The Believer as a Bay Area magazine or just a magazine published in the Bay Area. Is there an emphasis on local writers? Is this meant to just have a Bay Area perspective? And what is a Bay Area perspective? <laughs> or is this meant for a national slash international audience? I will say this is Vandela. I was born in San Francisco. I live in the Bay Area still. I will say I think it's very much a San Francisco magazine. In fact, not only because it's published by McSweeney's, which is, which is obviously here on Valencia Street in the city, but also because of well, for a couple of reasons. One, as you mentioned, Alexis, we are a city by the bay. We obviously have a you know port. I think we've always San Francisco's always had a global perspective, and so even though the San Francisco, the magazine's based in San Francisco, we obviously include writers from around the country and you know turn our eye to the international writing scene as well and love discovering works in translation and, and, and publishing writers from abroad. But I also was thinking a lot about, I was talking about this with Tom Barbash the other night at a Believer event that we had for the new magazine. He's a, a great Bay Area novelist and writer. And he was we we're talking about how San Francisco is kind of the opposite of uh, a city that has a crystallized ambition and drive. And I don't mean that as an insult to any city that does have crystallized ambition and drive, <laughs> but San Francisco has a lot of patience and maybe because of the landscape and its history. And literature requires patience, both from its writers. All of us are writers, so we 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 try to we try to have a lot of patience. But also literature requires patience from its readers. And I feel like that's why there's so many so many um, great book clubs and bookstores in the city because San Francisco just knows how to have patience and and, and read a lot. And I, so in that sense, it's very much a San Francisco magazine. Another thing that I was thinking a lot about was someone I've been really interested in recently um, is a woman named Madeline Gleason, who in 1947 um, started the Poetry Guild in San Francisco, and she mm. organized the first celebration of poetry in the U.S. It was called the Festival of Modern Poetry, and it inspired the San Francisco Renaissance. And 
and I really want to I want to write a Believer article about Madeleine Bloom Gleason. Actually, <laughs> sounds like it. Yeah, and she was saying that she um, that the point of the San Francisco Renaissance was to bring poetry out of the universities and the Ivy Towers and into the public. And I feel like the Believer tries to do that too. We try not to be too academic. We try to have fun with things, um, as you can see from the games and the classifieds and so forth. What about, um, you know, Ed, the New Yorker perspective? Do you think this is a San Francisco magazine? You know, yesterday when I was going to the office on Valencia Street, I was just, uh, I saw a hummingbird, which you don't see in New York. (laughs) And I was like, wait, a hummingbird. And then I looked up at the house that, uh, you know, the hummingbird was in the, you know, at a flower in the garden of this, this house. And the colors... They they looked exactly like the the colors of the cover, and I think there's something about that. Um, I don't know. It it suddenly all made sense. Let's put it. We that live way. in the Garden of Eden. I there we go. Yes, <laughs> exactly. It's definitely true. When you make a magazine from here, it's perfect. Yes, yes. Um, yeah. precisely. That's interesting. Heidi, how about you? I, I'm curious for your, all your perspective on that. Oh, I mean, it's such an interesting question to ask. I think that the fact that we are anchored here really does give us such an identity that it does feel really different from an identity that a magazine might have if it were centered in New York. And I do think, um, I think hummingbirds and patience. I think those are the two real takeaways about why this, <laughs> this magazine could not be in New York ever. Um, and, uh, and yet at the same time, and, and Vendela brought this up already, I do think that um, maybe for that reason, it also feels kind of like more approachable to people. It doesn't feel like it is from this kind of, um, whether correctly or incorrectly perceived kind of bastion of publishing that exists in New York that can feel really impenetrable and non-inclusive to people. So I think that the fact that it is based here is, um, it, it sends a really important message too to our readers um, and and the kind of openness I think that we have. Yeah. You know, one listener wants to uh, wants to talk about that as well. Um, they say, you know, it feels like to get into the Believer as a writer, you need to have gone to Columbia or a fancy MFA program. You need to know someone. The editors are all published authors or award winners. How's someone with no connections or a degree from an MFA program supposed to break in? Uh, Daniel, I suppose you have to take this one. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we... You know, as editors, I don't think we really prioritize credentials that much, really, actually. We were talking the other day about how some of the, you know, best pieces that have ended up in The Believer have come to us in, in random emails. And I think for us, we're just really looking, and part of what we're looking to do, actually, is break out emerging writers and bring new voices, um, new identities to the fore. And, and when I say that, I mean identity in all its dimensions, you know, race, gender, but also uh, class and geography and we're always looking to bring in as many different um, perspectives as we can to the magazine. And so I think like that's what attracts our attention more than anything is when someone has um, a, a distinctive voice, a distinctive style. Um, so those are, I would say those are the kinds of things we look for when we're evaluating pieces and um, uh, more than anything. Yeah. Let's uh, go to a caller, uh, Frank in Mill Valley. Welcome. Hi there, guys. I'm, I may have missed this in the beginning, but I'm a, a guy who reads three newspapers a day, so I'm totally a believer in print over Internet. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, I wanted to ask, my only experience with long-form magazines is The New Yorker. God help, I should mention a competitor. Um, and one of the things I love about it is that, and it, it sounds like almost like a slam, is that you can 
you you can have two or three issues going at the same time because what you're looking for is not so much the talk of the town, but these weird uh, 20,000 words on uh, mm-hmm. oyster farming in, in Tomales Bay, which are always current. I mean, the, the editors have passed this. So how do you guys see yourself either in contrast to or completely different than or, or same idea than The New Yorker? Could I? Yeah. Frank, good, good question, which I'm... Uh... I'm glad I didn't have to ask it. Uh, <laughs> what do you think? Um, Heidi, let's go to you. Well, I guess I would say one one big difference, um, having um, read The New Yorker for a long time, having had the great pleasure of writing for The New Yorker, um, you know, The New Yorker has a house style. Um, when you read The New Yorker, there, and that's not to say that... Um, In 1927... Yeah. R- Rusty Baker was in the right. They have these like historical yeah. leads. Yeah. And, yeah. and I and that's not to say that people's uh, very individual styles as writers don't come through when you read those pieces. They absolutely do. Um, but I do feel like uh, we don't really have a house style. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, um, you know, Ed's already spoken to the sort of formal possibilities that can happen in The Believer. Um, there's a lot more room um, for play in our pages. If I could just mention um, two staff writers at The New Yorker right now, um, Hua Xu and Rachel Aviv, mm. both of whom were on the the New York Times just picked their top ten books of the year. Both of Watch their you, guest on the show as well. Ken yeah, said. both yeah. of their books were there, and we ran some of their earliest pieces. And you can check them out in the archive. Um, they're amazing pieces. Rachel, I remember, wrote about uh, public speaking and how she <laughs> tried to tried to get herself to be, um, a, you know, a more confident public speaker, which which she now is. Um, and Hua uh, wrote some great pieces that were that were music related and you can see um i I mean obviously they were different they were they were younger writers then they were kind of um trying out uh voices and forms but uh you can you can kind of contrast that to um some of the pieces uh they write now for the new yorker and just um uh it might be it might your your uh listener might be might be interested in just seeing sort of um how uh kind of expansive um writing for the for the believer can be like how how writers can kind of experiment with different different effects and different voices that's fun yeah uh, wow, that book is so good, by the way, for those. Uh, Stay True, it's called. Stay is, uh, True, wow. yeah. yeah. And uh, Strangers to Ourselves is the other one, which is also great. Um, we have another listener question coming in. Nick writes, are there plans for an annual music issue again? I've always loved both the music mm-hmm. and the discussion about it, and the 2007 issue is still on regular rotation for me. Yes, the answer is yes. We actually had an editorial meeting yesterday, and we were talking about the, a music issue and having music issue once um, once a year. And we were trying to figure out what what vehicle we would deliver the music on because in, back in the day we had a cassette tape at one point with a you know a mixtape. We had um, a DVD. I mean, we had a CD at one point. We also had a DVD for another uh, for art issue. But I, we're trying to figure out what is the new way to to um, share our music with listeners. So um, stay tuned for that. We'll figure it I out mean, and let you know. Yeah, if anyone has any recommendations. <laughs> Send us letters at uh, thebeliever.net. Exactly. Yeah. I don't know if YouTube playlist is going to quite have no. the aura of a <laughs> cassette tape. Um, 
What what is it about a music issue that you feel like the believer does differently? Um, well, we haven't done one in a while, I feel like. Um, in, actually, in the UNLV days, we sort of switched up the way we were doing special issues, and we moved to special issues that were thematic. So it's been a while since we've done one, and I think we would probably reimagine it in a different way now. And I think that's that's something that we'll probably talk about in you know the coming months. Um, but I, you know, I think everyone obviously always loved the um, you know compilations that we sent out. And similar to the magazine, I think it was a way to discover new things, um, new musicians that you hadn't heard of. And I think that's something that folks have always liked about reading The Believer. And I think it's one of the, the best reasons to pick it up is to find new writers, find new books that you haven't heard about. Um, it's, a, it's a great way to, to learn about new stuff. Yeah. Thanks, Daniel. Um... Vendela, I want to talk a little bit uh, about the physical object and kind of like the magazine making part of this. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think a lot of people don't quite understand how much work goes into like finding the paper stock, but then how much fun there is in kind of the sequencing. And there's great little, um, I can't remember what those little drawings are called, but there's little kind of interstitial drawings of, of uh, robots and things in here. Like, what do you, like, talk to me about those like fun little bits that aren't the big features, but that, you know, it's why you're not just like reading a Word document, you know, you're reading a magazine. Um, well, yeah, I talked about the smell of the paper stock. Um, we heavily researched that when we interview our printers. We talk about, you know, we have them sell, um, send us fragrance samples. Um, I, know, I think, like I said, you know, Sandra Thompson's really responsible for this. Um, Dave Eggers did the original design of The Believer, actually based on a book I gave him for... Um, for Christmas or Valentine's Day. I can't right. remember. It was an old book. And little did I know that it would actually <laughs> inspire. And I can't remember the name of the book now. We have it in somewhere in, in a box. But it, um, it inspired the uh, the design of the magazine. And um, we knew we wanted to feature faces on the cover because so much about the believer was focusing on on people and, and the and artists. We really wanted to showcase them. And so that was the original impulse for the magazine, um, for the design. But Daniel, can you speak a little bit about how the organization, because what is interesting about the Believer too is we don't we don't have a section with short pieces up front and then long. Right, you don't pieces have in the a back. quote unquote front of book. Right, we don't yeah. have front of book. Everything's front of book. <laughs> Everything's. I'm um, like I'm just looking flipping here. We have a new advice column, um, and Carrie Brownstein is is giving advice, and she's you know she says she's better at dispensing advice than taking it, and she answers your questions. So that's another thing. If you want Carrie Brownstein to answer your questions, please send them to advice at thebeliever.net and. Um, and maybe she'll answer them in the forthcoming issue. But I, I think that's that is what's special about it. You never know what's going to happen when you turn the page. You're not, you know, you don't know if you're going to get a long piece, a short piece, a can, you know, piece of candy, as we call it. Um, but can you talk about the drawings that are in the pages, Daniel? Yeah, those are our um, incidentals. Those are by uh, Tim Peacock. And yeah, every issue we have a different incidentals artist, and it's a fun way to showcase someone's work. Um, and they, they're always themed in some different way. And so, yeah, these are Tim's uh, robot drawings uh, throughout this issue. Yeah. Um, listener uh, Elizabeth writes in to say, I moved to San Francisco. I'm a transplant from Watsonville to be a writer in 1995. Back then, I remember hustling open mic, making chat books and zines and feeling there was always a place to get voices out in the world. Me and so many now well-known Bay Area writers all strive to make it and get a page in a literary magazine. Love the magazine, and I'm so glad it's back. I'd love to see some of my friends and favorite Bay Area writers be in it. Jen Joseph, Paul Flores, Leticia Hernandez, Kathy Ariano. Just some of the fellow writers whom I was lucky to hustle in the mission back in the day. Just hope the spirit of the Bay stays true. Thank you. I can't wait to read it. 
Um, and I thought maybe we would go with one last description of something that's in the piece. Kind of saved this one, which is pretty special for, for last. Daniel, can you talk about Aristocrat Inc.? It's how a small computer chip company, which was owned by the author's mother, somehow became the target of a crime ring. Yeah, this is a wonderful piece. We're super excited about this. It's it's really one of the bedrocks of the issue. Uh, Natalie is a local writer. We actually got to see her at, at our recent event um, here for the release. And it's just a really wonderful deep dive into this history that also involves her her family story. And Ed's actually the one who uh, brought this piece in and, and had a relationship with Natalie. I don't know if you want to yeah, elaborate I'll, on it. I'll Ed. say a few words. I you know this is a by far the longest piece in the issue. It's I think fourteen thousand words, and uh, early early in the pandemic, uh, fall of twenty twenty, I was. Uh, uh, Natalie and I were messaging about K-dramas and and I think I was saying you should you should write a piece about K-dramas and she said something like oh my you know my confidence in my writing is is kind of at a lull right now and I and she had been working on a piece and was kind of not finding any traction with editors and she she kind of she said it was about um a, a pan-Asian uh crime crime ring that was preying on primarily Asian uh, computer companies um mm-hmm. in 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 Silicon Silicon Valley in the in the nineties, and I asked to see it, and I was blown away. It was very long, very in depth. It had sort of a a well paced you know cops and robbers feel to it. It also uh, kind of a secret history of uh, Asians in the early days of of the tech industry that you know I didn't I didn't really know about. Uh, f- fast forward to uh, this year when it seemed like. You know, I had not been involved with the Believer or editing anything in the Believer for for some years, and this year, when it uh-huh. was when it seemed like it was it was uh, coming, coming back, back uh, I asked if she still had it, and she did, and she Boom. kind of dressed it up, and it's it's great. <laughs> it's a, it's a it's a mind blowing read. Yeah, we've been talking about the resurrection of the Believer magazine. They've got a new issue out. We've been joined by its three founding editors, Vanda Levita, Heidi Julevitz, and Ed Park, as well as its current editor, Daniel Gumbiner. The new issue can be purchased at thebeliever.net or mcsweeney's.net. Thank you so much for joining us, y'all. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having us. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising-Simons Foundation. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way, from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found you. How? You left to find my tablet on. 
Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hi, I'm Tyler Foggett. Join me and my colleagues as we go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds in politics for insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Make sure you're following The Political Scene, available now wherever you get your podcasts.